The Old Testament lesson for the 18th Sunday after Trinity is from Deuteronomy chapter 10. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God, who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 22nd chapter. Glory be to thee, O Lord. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise be to thee, O Christ. The key this morning comes at the beginning of our Old Testament lesson. At the end of verse 13, as Moses is describing to the people of Israel the commandments that he is giving them from God, he explains why. Why do you have these commandments? He says, I am commanding them to you today for your good. That's the key. The commandments are for our good. Now, it's easy to think about all different kinds of commandments, all different kinds of laws that are supposed to be for our good, and we know what that's like. So the speed limit, uh, that's for your good. It's to keep you out of an accident, but really, do you need the speed limit to keep you safe? Is it necessary? It's kind of like, let's bring everything down a little bit to keep everybody safe. It's for our good, but it kind of robs me of a little bit of joy. I'd rather drive faster on the highway. It's fun to drive faster. I get there more quickly wherever I'm trying to go. Is that commandment really good for me? And so we wonder often 
about laws, about commandments, about things that are for our good, like when your dad said to you, listen, son, this is for your good. You wondered in that moment whether it was actually for your good or not. This is the way things are for us in a fallen world with sinful human beings. When someone says that something is for our good and it grates on us, when it seems to rob us of some happiness, we don't believe it. Maybe we can buy in because it's holding off disaster. Yes, yes, yes. The speed limit is for our good. It saves us from having all kinds of accidents on the road. Okay, I'll follow that law. That's the way we tend to think about commandments. Grudgingly, unwillingly, obeying them because somebody said that they were for our good. That's not how God wants us to think about his law. He means it in an entirely different way. When he says that it's for our good, he is inviting us to see it differently than we have seen anything else before. Now, we know, of course, about God's law that it staves off disaster, just like the speed limit does. The world understands, everyone understands by nature that there are some things that are wrong, and if you do them, look, it's going to make you miserable. So if you commit murder, you're going to go to jail. It's not a good thing for you to be a murderer. Or when Solomon is giving advice to his son, he says, don't commit adultery, don't sleep with another man's wife. Why? Because her husband is going to kill you. That will make you miserable. Don't do it. We understand something about the nature of law, that it holds off disaster. Or just think about breaking any law of any kind, God's law, God's word. You are beset with guilt. When you know you have done wrong, Here's how it's described by Luther. Any rustling leaf is a reminder. Like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, when they heard God walking through the garden in the cool of the day, they heard just the rustling of a leaf and it reminded them of their guilt. And that was miserable all on its own. We know, we know that God's law is meant to keep us from misery. And that's one way to understand the good of God's law. But that is not all. In fact, that is not what God's law is in essence. It's not just holding off disaster. It's not just saving us from misery or keeping us out of more misery than we need to be in. Instead, here's how we should understand God's commandments. They are a picture of what is supposed to be. They're a picture of how things were in paradise, in the Garden of Eden. And so you can think about God's law as like the water that a fish swims in. It's where it belongs. God's law is where we belong. His commandments are where we belong. It's where we flourish. And outside of God's commandments, well, it's like a fish flopping on the shore, unable to breathe, unable to make it anywhere. That's how life is for us apart from God's law. That's what it is in essence. It's a picture of how things should be. But boy, are we ever fish out of water in this world. We feel it all around us. We feel it in the threat of punishment for breaking God's law. We feel it in the misery and sorrow and grief that we see and that we experience ourselves. We are outside of God's law. But God's law is meant for something better. It's meant to show us a picture of what should be, and we should long for that. Now, here's the question for you. If God's law is so good, if it's such a blessing, if it's meant to show us happiness and how life is supposed to be, what went wrong? 
I used this illustration in our Wednesday evening Bible class, and I want you to carry this picture around in your head as well. Imagine, imagine a mountain. Not a high mountain like Mount Everest with snow at the top, but a very pleasant mountain with green all around at the top of the hill. And there on top of that mountain is the Garden of Eden with trees good for fruit, happiness, paradise. There it is at the top of the mountain. And what happened in Genesis chapter 3 is that the serpent came along, the devil came along, and he whispered to Adam and Eve that God was withholding some happiness from them. There they were, on top of the mountain, in the garden, walking with God, and the devil lied and said, you could be happier still. What a lie that is. God is the source of all happiness and all goodness. Where can you find happiness apart from God? And yet, Adam and Eve believed the lie, and what happened was that they took a tumble down that hill, to the depths below. Darkness, not a pleasant valley with a stream running through it, but a rocky cavern. Darkness and dreary, dripping and sad. That's what happened in Genesis chapter 3. Out of Eden into the depths of despair. Away from God's law, from his goodness, from his love, from his blessing, down into something that is completely distorted, completely depraved, misery, tragedy, sorrow, That's where we are. Now we can look up at that mountain and we can see where the goodness lies. We know in our hearts that there are some things better than what we have, than what we do. We know in our hearts that we could do better. That if we obeyed God's law, everything would be better. And yet, here we stand at the bottom of the hill looking up and we can't get there on our own. We see it in the distance And maybe we long for it like a fish would long for water, and yet it's inaccessible. It's out of reach. And so often what happens, here's the state of our world, people become bitter in their hearts. They look up and they see what would be good, and they begin to despise it because they cannot have it. It's like uh, an outcast, an outlaw, walking along a street at night, and he looks in a window and he sees a family, happy, sitting around a dinner table rejoicing, glad to be together, enjoying a delicious meal. And he's walking outside that window and he sees it and he longs for it. But then he says, I can't have that. That's not for me. In fact, you know what? I don't need that. What I have is better. And so his heart turns away from what is good, from what would be a blessing. It turns into the darkness and loneliness. And that is the way it is for this world, far from God, separated from his law, despising, in fact, his commandments, because they are unattainable. We can't reach them on our own. We can't obtain the blessing that God wants to give us. That's the state of our world. But it is not the state for you, dear Christians. Because you have been given something better. Better than a longing for what would be good and holy and blessed. Better than a longing for happiness that is unattainable. You have been given Christ himself. So Christ did not remain. Jesus, the Son of God, did not remain up on that mountain, far away, residing in the goodness of God, all distant from you. But instead, what did he do? He came down into the depths of depravity. Darkness and misery is the place that he entered. Why? So that he could be with you and draw you to himself. He came down from that mountain. He came into the depths of despair to die for you and for me, to forgive our sins, to show us what love looks like, and to give us that love. 
he shows us what the commandments look like, how good and glorious they are, and he gives us the righteousness that comes from those commandments which we could not have on our own. He gives us his own life. That's the glory of the gospel for you and for me, that we are not stuck at the bottom of this hill, but Christ is in fact drawing us up. We are not stuck in a place where the commandments are all about keeping away disaster or telling us what we're not good enough at doing, but instead they are something for us to desire and for something for us to aspire towards and something that God is teaching us. This is the task for every Christian who's been forgiven. It is to learn once again love. It's like a fish who's been out of water and gets back in the water and needs to learn again to swim and to breathe the air of that water. It's like somebody who lived in the depths below and who rises again to the mountain and must learn to live in a place where there is no greed, no selfishness, no lust, no envy, but instead only holiness and goodness and life. That's what we have to learn. And that's where the commandments are so glorious for you and for me. You have been put to death by them. They showed you your sin. But Christ has come to forgive all of that. And so now let the commandments show you what life looks like. And it looks like this. Here's what Jesus says. It looks like love. Love God and love your neighbor. It is important to note that when Jesus talks about love, he is not talking about the kind of love that this world thinks of. There are lots of ways that this world distorts love. So here are some examples. The Beatles got it wrong. When what they said was, all you need is love, over and over and over and over again, but never told us what it is. I looked at the lyrics of all you need is love. It's a pretty boring song, I'll tell you that. There's nothing there. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's also not talking about the love that reigns in our world right now. Love is love is love kind of a love, where it's whatever your heart desires. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He knows what's in your hearts. He knows what's in human hearts. It's also not sentiments and nice thoughts. So I was at the UPS store the other day, and there were a whole bunch of us there. I went there at noon, the wrong time to go to the UPS store, and we were all standing in line to drop off our Amazon returns, as one does. And I was waiting in line, but the line was too long, and then we all realized together that there was this self-checkout. You could go scan your code, and you could drop the thing in the box all on your own, and there was this moment of joy for all of us standing there. It was like we had this camaraderie, this love, for what we had accomplished. But that, I'll tell you, is not what Jesus is talking about. It's not just goodwill among humans for things going your way. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about politeness or just leaving others alone, biting your tongue like we talked about last week, mere civility. That's not what he's after. He's not after indulgence or permissiveness, never letting anyone else feel any discomfort. That is not what love is. Instead, St. John tells us, In this we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us. He saw us from on high, he pitied us, his heart was broken for us, and so he did not stay at a distance, but instead he came to our depths of degradation. He wanted us to be with him, and so he did whatever it took, spent his whole life to bring us out of despair. He saved us in love gladly, willingly, joyfully, that is what love looks like. It's not just to do good to someone, not just to do good things or kind things, but it is in fact instead to want to do good, to desire from the bottom of your heart. The way that nobody has to twist your arm to to eat ice cream or to embrace your grandchildren. Love is desiring to do what is actually good, 
And that is what Jesus wants to give us. Love for God and love for our neighbor. Moses tells us what love for God looks like. It looks like this. It's fearing God, fearing him alone above all things and walking in all his ways to want him near and not far, not keeping him at arm's length, to want to hear his word, to want to follow his commands, to want to believe his promises, to trust his promises and to receive his blessings, to give him glory and to keep his name holy. It is to treasure him our creator and our redeemer above all else. That is what love for God looks like. That is what Jesus is teaching us. And he is teaching us to love our neighbors, to desire what is good for those around us, not merely to have good feelings, but instead to do what is good and to want what is good for everyone we see and to act in accordance, to want everyone to be blessed and enriched, to want everyone to live eternally. To want those who are in our care, those for whom we are responsible, to to live forever with us. That is what love looks like. We have a long way to go in learning love, but here's the promise. God teaches us what is love, what is good, because he wants to bless us. He does not want us to always live weighted down under his heavy hand which is showing us our sin. Instead, he wants to take away his hand because he has taken away our sins so that we can live eternally in joy with him. And so let us learn to love. Let us learn to love God's law. Let us learn to rejoice in his commandments. Let us learn to want to walk in his ways. Here are a few things that may help. Three steps, if you will, for learning to love. The first is this. It is always, always Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. In ages past, we could have called this meditating on the love of Christ. That's a good way to think about it. Sitting and staring at it. Imagine the way that you meditate on things that you love. You sit out on a nice fall afternoon and you look at the leaves and you just take it in. That is what you are invited to do when it comes to the love of Jesus. Meditate on his cross. Think about what he has saved you from. Think about what it has cost him. Think about how much he loved you in order to give up everything that he had to be with you. Let that be what occupies your thoughts day in and day out. When you wake in the morning and when you go to sleep at night, whenever you have a spare moment, think about Christ and what he has done for you. Learn love by looking at him. You will not find it anywhere else. If you try to learn love by looking at the world, you will be gravely disappointed and brought back to the depths of despair. Instead, meditate on Christ. And then pray. Here's step number two. Pray. Psalm 119 is the longest psalm in the Bible, the longest chapter in the Bible, 176 verses. But I will tell you, it is all about loving God's law. It's broken up into bite-sized chunks, so you could take eight verses at a time, and I recommend this to you highly. Pray that you would love God's law. That's what David does. Listen just to a little bit of Psalm 119. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. What a beautiful, simple prayer. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Lord, grant that I would always love your law. Lord, grant that I would want to do what is good. Change my heart, O Lord. Give me a heart that loves what you command so that I will desire what is good. Lord, grant 
that I never stray from your commandments, never wander from your law, never think for a moment that it is not for my good and for my blessing, but instead always strive for what you have told me is good and what you have promised to deliver to me. Psalm 119 is your prayer. Take it up and pray that God would teach you to love his commands. And then, step number three, be busy with God's word. It's one thing to want to love God's commands, and it's another thing entirely to know what they say. And that's what God's word is good for. Teaching us what God loves. Teaching us how God cares for us and how he teaches us to care for others. After all, the way that we are going to love each other is the way that God has loved us. The way that we are going to love God is the way that a son loves his father. The way that we are going to love Christ is the way a bride loves her groom. We learn all of this in God's word. And so, be busy. As you read God's word, think about how this teaches you, how God's word teaches you what is good and what is holy, and rejoice that God has not kept his word far from you. He doesn't stand on his holy mountain mocking you and saying, oh, what poor, miserable sinners those are. They're going to get what they deserve. Instead, he loves you in this way. He sent his son to die for you, to draw you up to the heights of heaven, and he is willing to teach you everything you need to know in order to live there. Rejoice that you have such a gracious and merciful God. To him alone be all glory, now and forever. Amen.